Welcome back to the Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast. This is Patricia, and this is the season one finale to the Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast. Yay! <laughs> I hope you guys are doing well, uh, staying healthy, staying socially distant, and being socially responsible with all the craziness that's been happening just over the past couple of days. Things are kind of weird,、um, you know. I don't know how things are on your guys's end. I apologize for this episode coming out late, a couple hours late. Usually, these episodes are posted Monday morning. It is probably well into Monday afternoon by the time you are listening to this. So, hopefully, those of you who are working from home. Uh, this episode will, I don't know, maybe restore a little bit of normalcy in your otherwise not normal lives for the time being. It's kind of weird because over the past couple of days on social media, I've been just kind of seeing what people have been talking about amongst people who are my friends,、uh, a lot of whom are not in the education spaces, and there's a lot of like discussion about like just you know taking this time to slow down, you know, take some walks outside, you know, be one with nature again, just kind of like embracing the the fact that things. Are just kind of gonna be a little slower and you know less less、uh, demanding, I guess is a word, for the time being, which is very strange to me because I felt the opposite to be true. Being in the education space, it seems like everything has really sped up、uh, for very justifiable reasons. You know that the reason being that we're now moving to online learning, as have many other schools, and it's like having to take everything that you are planning on teaching in person in a classroom for the next, you know, whatever, how, however many months, and then converting that to a totally different format, redoing a lot of your, you know, curriculum plans, just basically like throwing out a lot of things and then having to like rethink a lot of them. It's just a lot, and so things have been kind of、uh, crazy over my end. I just got back from school about an hour ago. We've been in meetings to kind of figure things out before going totally offsite for the next. However many weeks, but honestly, I'm kind of excited,、um, which sounds like such a funny thing to say, and one of the, probably really annoying,、uh, considering how stressed out many people, many teachers must be about having to make so many changes so quickly, as well as like parents and students.、Um, it's it's a weird emotional time for a lot of folks. I think I experienced a lot of the emotions as well over the past couple of days.、Uh, I remember coming into our first like faculty meeting without students on Friday. Feeling just like really sad, like like feeling sad and the sadder as, as the longer I spent in the school building.、Um, you know, I don't I don't know if that experience is is universal, but I think there was something about like knowing that things were inevitably changing and knowing that I would not be able to like see my kids in person for probably a while.、Um, and I never actually felt that way before. I think I'm, I don't feel like I'm that much of a sentimentalist when it comes to these like teachery things, but I you know. Felt, got got a little bit emotional at that idea, and then you feel like, and then you realize that like there's just so much going on that you just kind of have to, like you know, put the emotions in a box and put it away and get back to work. And so that's kind of what I've been doing. So like the goal right now is to just. Get this podcast episode out, which is in a sense kind of taking a break from the craziness that has been the past couple of days, and then head back into the craziness. So、uh, be kind to your、uh, to your teacher friends,、uh, to your friends who are students who are now distance learning、uh, the rest of their semester away. And so and so, yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting time. Like I said, I'm kind of excited.、Um, I think despite the number of changes that are happening, I think there's a lot of room for just a lot of innovation, a lot of like encountering new things that hopefully will be tools that we can use to make education better in、uh, in the future. And so. 
it's been really interesting seeing a lot of like uh, teachers who have been doing the distance learning thing forever come out of the word work and be, hey, be like, hey, this is what we've been doing. This is what I've been developing for like years. Um, here's my time to shine. And um, and, and what, what's been happening there has been really, really neat. Um, I think I don't want to spend too much time on this uh, because there is something about how things will happen with this podcast after this week that is related to all of this that I wanted to save to the end of the episode uh, to make the announcement. But anyway, uh, just some context as to why I probably sound like way more discombobulated than usual. I'm also very caffeinated right now. Um, you know, just things things are different for the time being. And I, and I just want to acknowledge that um, and press into it and, and be okay with it. Um, you know, I think that regardless of where you are mentally and emotionally, work-wise, trying to figure out the, the way that your life has been kind of changing or will change over the next couple of weeks, I think there's something comforting about knowing that like basically you know, considering how connected our world is now, everyone's kind of on a similar wavelength. Everyone, you know, feels as, you know, unknowledgeable and uncertain about the future. Um, and, and I think, you know, having that kind of solidarity is, is really kind of a nice thing, um, you know, as we're all kind of cloistered inside of our houses for the time being. So anyway, uh, wanted to make this episode kind of a change of scenery so that you all are not like oversaturated with coronavirus angst and news, uh, like I, like I have for the past couple of days. Um, I had planned on doing this episode long before things started getting crazy. Uh, this episode on grad school, applying to grad school and getting the results from my grad school applications, which have been happening over the past month or so. Um, so anyway, context. Uh, I had mentioned probably in previous episodes that I had applied to graduate school this cycle, you know, cycle for this basically meaning like applications being due in January in anticipation for matriculation in like summer f semester for some programs and then fall semester for others. Um my friend, who is also applying to grad school this cycle, although not for education, um, has suggested to me to do an episode on the process of applying to graduate school. Um, and, and I had thought a little bit about this because I think my first reaction was to think that this was like an incredibly self-centered and self-absorbed exercise. Cause like, and I only say that because like, I feel like by the time you end up like, you know, reaching the age where you are applying to grad school, you're kind of at an age where like, you're too old for anyone around you to tolerate your whining about it. Like, or, or really, it's kind of like one of those things that like is not any less work intensive than like applying for undergraduate is when you're a high school student. Um, and yet at the same time, because almost everyone who is applying for grad school is either like working on, is either already in, already in school, um, or is working along the side. If it's there's almost this, this expectation that when you're applying to grad school, it's something that just kind of like hums along quietly in the background as like this, you know, extracurricular that doesn't take that much work to do, and it's just something that like is very understated, right? You don't make a big deal out of it because I don't know, like I guess you're that's what you're supposed to do when you're a full grown adult is that you're not supposed to make a big deal out of anything. But I mean, truth be told, guys, like you 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 see that, and then you like you know, have the assumption that that applying to grad school is like not a big deal. And then you like go to places like Reddit and Grad Cafe and you realize like that's where all the nervous energy has been the whole time. Like there are, you know, it's like people don't freak out outwardly about it. They try to stay as like understated and chill about it as possible because it's not cool to be at a, a, a person of a certain age 
and then to be, you know, so self-absorbed so as to be like, you know, telling everyone about your grad school application angst all the time. And it turns out that like where that angst is all going to is like the internet, right? Um, and so, so all that is to say is that the grad school application process is, is pretty stressful and it's pretty involved and it, and it requires a good bit of work and money and emotional energy. And a lot of the emotional energy comes out of like the uncertainty of it. Um, there's a lot about the, because of how people don't really talk about it, IRL, um, there's a lot about the process that feels very opaque. And what I found is that there's a lot of like, quote unquote, like in-group knowledge that you would need to be aware of. Uh, things like, what is considered to be like an acceptable GRE score, right? The comparison to that being like SAT scores, which like if you were in high school, you would know what were like what a, you know, acceptable, a good SAT score would be because all your friends would be talking about it. Well, like what if, you know, you as a fully grown adult, not all of your friends are talking about and comparing notes on their GRE schools because that's tacky and immature. Um, so how do you know what a good GRE score is for your field for you know what the competition quote unquote is um, things like you know you ask for letters of recommendation what happens when your recommenders don't respond um, how are you supposed to ask who should you be asking uh, how are you going to pay for it things like that and so I found that there was just a ton of like in-group knowledge a lot of like acronyms too uh, things that like you know you would feel like there's a handbook written for all this but there really isn't and so that's why like you know applying for grad school just seems very opaque a lot of the times and to an extent it's a little bit like you can you can you can have a conversation about how this is an equity issue and how like in order to even like start on the even to access this point of entry into graduate school you need to have had all these resources all of this like you know knowledge in order to even proceed um, but anyway, I think as I was like kind of browsing along and trying to be as well informed as possible before I was getting into this process, I found that like applying for teaching slash education master's programs in particular felt very different from what I was seeing online. I think part of this was because I was on Reddit a lot and Reddit like the r slash um, grad admissions subreddit is very like STEM heavy. And so I was like really confused as to like, you know, why, why, why are my programs not not requiring like, you know, me to submit a portfolio or like uh, submit re research citations, things like that. Like, why do I not need a POI, uh, things of that thing in that that nature. And so um Number one, right, if you're listening to this because you're interested in applying or pursuing grad, uh, education um, in on, on the graduate level, I think there's a couple of things that make it very, very different from what you might be seeing for other programs. But at the same time, I feel like you could probably say the same about like, all the different fields, right? Like every master's program, I think, is uh, tends to be a little bit different. There is it's not as if education programs are like this kind of like, you know, uh, redheaded stepchild of graduate programs. Uh, that said, though, I think um, there are also a lot of things about graduate uh, master's programs in education that are quite different, uh, one of them being the time span. Uh, it's really rare to find education or master of arts and teaching programs that are longer than one year. I think on average, if you're going for like a certification sort of track, 
um, program. It's usually like one summer, one fall, one spring, and then maybe a second summer, and they just kind of cram everything into one year. If you want to look at that from like a financial perspective, it makes a lot of sense because like edu- graduating with like an education degree, a master's of education, is not going to land you a six figure job where you can pay off like years and years of grad school debt all at once. So they're kind of like you know you pay for one year and then you can you know work off your 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 like five figure salary low end of five figure salary to pay off your debt afterwards as soon as possible um so we can talk about the politics of like ed- being a teacher and having a master's degree in the in the uh, in the economics of that some other time when I, um, you know, when when maybe when I'm like faced with that actual reality when I'm holding my fancy master's master's degree and realizing that I have just earned a master's degree in a field that will never be able to pay for it. But anyway, um, yeah, I find that like you know, even with the specificity of education programs and how unique they tend to be um you know again every single master's program i feel has like its own kind of brand of specificity and so um this is just one look into one kind of master's program that again uh if you are a pragmatist and you are someone who is wanting to become a teacher later in life and did not take any education courses did not get licensure in undergrad this is how i did it um and it was it took a while to figure this out but hopefully this will this will prove useful to someone um, and so the purpose of me talking about this, obviously, is to zero in on this one kind of program. And my explanation uh, of all of this will be tailored by things like questions like, you know, why did I decide to apply, decide to apply now and for what purpose? Uh, things like, you know, what materials I had to prepare, um, how I chose the schools and programs, what I was looking for. Um, and also in terms of like organizing my application de- uh, timeline while I was working. And then last but not least. Last but not least, like the uh, the waiting slash decision game um, and kind of weighing my choices and acceptances. So there's that. Uh, and there's also kind of like, you know, a bit of a personal motive for me as well. Um, so as a spoiler, uh, it took me a long time to even arrive at the decision to apply for grad school. Um, and the reason for that is because, like, once you get into the grad school application land, there is no such thing as a safety school anymore. I'll talk about why that is later on in the episode. Um, but it was kind of like there are lots of people who spend a lot of time and money applying to graduate school um, and get into no schools uh, for various reasons. And I was very, very cognizant of the possibility that that could be me. Um, my stats are kind of like all over the place and I would, my undergraduate profile is not, was not impressive. Um, but, uh, there was, there were a couple of reasons why I decided to kind of bite the bullet on it anyway. So I applied to eight schools. Um, some of the schools were very ambitious. Some of them felt like they should have been safety schools, but also felt like they were not safety schools. So applied to eight schools and I was accepted into all eight. Uh, and the thing about like talking about grad school acceptances um, to people who, you know, are not necessarily totally knowledgeable about your entire journey, your entire process is that like, you know, talking to them about like, you know, these acceptances, particularly when like the names of the schools that you got accepted to are like super fancy, um, is that there's no way to talk about it without seeming like a total jerk um, because you always sound like you're overplaying it or you're underplaying it. Um, and I think like if you're listening to this and you know me in person and you've ever had only ever had like a 90 second long conversation with me about this, um, you've probably walked away from that conversation with like 
weird feelings and perhaps many like skeptical questions that I don't know you might not feel like you need like concrete answers to because I think people tend to have their own opinions about how like people ought to react to good things that happen to them um and if someone reacts in a way that like doesn't match up with your personal ethics it opens up like a lot of room for judgment so what I'm saying is like you know say like you know you if you 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 announce good news and you come across as being really like you know excited and overjoyed at it, um, you know it could come across to one person as being incredibly arrogant. Um, on the other hand, if you are acting super humble and like under underplaying it a little bit, um, it can also seem to another person as being performative and pretentious, right? Um, so there's really just no good way to talk about any of this in like a you know elevator pitch sort of way without again leaving a lot of room for people to kind of judge your character as a result of how you react to good news. Um, for me, the fact that I was accepted to all eight of these programs was a really big deal for me, um, and and it felt and and the thing is like again with good news I felt like the only way that like you can really get away from that take away that room for judgment is to I don't know like spend an hour long podcast episode explaining everything um, you know like for those of you who also have that weakness of needing to be understood by everyone you know around you this is the ultimate you know example of this. Um, but, but I, but hopefully y'all will hear me out and, um, you know, be able to, to understand the story a little bit because I think, um, you know, this, this did, this did actually mean a lot to me. Um, a lot of this news was very surprising. Like I said, like, I, I thought that I was going to get into zero schools and I don't mean that facetiously. Like, I really did not think I was getting into zero school, getting into any schools, and to get into getting to get into all eight and then to get into the eight that I did uh, was a really big deal for me. And so, um, you know, I love it if you could give me the opportunity to explain in full truly what all of this meant to me. So anyway, to start from the beginning, um, why now? So to kind of you know explain a bit of the timeline, I graduated from undergrad in 2014. Um, and now it's 2020. I'll be entering, I'll be matriculating in fall of 2020 and then graduating in spring of 2021. And so that leaves me like the six year sort of gap between undergrad and then starting graduate school. And those six years, obviously, I've been working at uh, the same school Um teaching Chinese and as advising a bunch of clubs. Uh, for those of you who are new to this podcast, the school that I teach at is an independent K-12 Christian school. Um, the way I came into that school was largely accidental. They had a Chinese program. They needed a teacher uh, kind of on a, like a last minute basis. Uh, they found a living, breathing human being that could that new Chinese and that person was me. They were like, hey, might as well. And then here we are six years later. Um Looking back on it, I think I can confidently say that without that kind of happenstance sort of, uh, you know, this this job, I would not have gotten into any of the places that I got into. Um, but that wasn't really what was on my mind when I was deciding to apply. It wasn't kind of like a, okay, now I'm ready. I've kind of stacked my profile and now I have something to kind of say for myself. Um, to be honest, it was kind of like a my GRE scores are going to expire in two years. And if I don't use them now, I will have to retake the GRE and I don't want to do that. So that was like the main, that was kind of like the, the, the main like kind of catalyst for all of this. But like, if you were to talk about this on like a more existential level, it was more kind of like, okay, I am firmly 
a teacher now, right? Because I've been doing this for six years. I'm pretty sure this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, and yet there's nothing on my like, you know, list of credentials that really points in that direction apart from six years of experience teaching at an independent Christian school, which, you know, again, is something that should stand on its own. But I think depending on which social and, you know, I don't know demographic circles you're in, that could count for a lot or it could count for very little. Um, people tend to be kind of like skimmers of resumes. And so like if you just say that, like, you know, like your only teaching experience is at this, you know, small Christian school in northeastern, uh, the northeast U.S. Um, and and you were like the one Chinese teacher and there was like no like, you know, you weren't part of like whatever, you know, like. And so people tend to like fill in the blanks on their own. And so I also realized that like along with my GRI scores uh, expiring that I just really need some sort of credential, like not necessarily credential with a capital C in terms of like a teaching state teaching credential, um, but just some sort of like empirical proof that I could like hold up and say yes I am a teacher and this piece of paper says so you know um now obviously like getting credentialed by uh you know a state having like a, a former teacher formal teacher license was important to me at the time um because well I mean for optics mostly right I think a lot of folks know that you need to have a you know like a legit teachers quote-unquote legit teachers have licenses or rather non-legit teachers don't have licenses um, you know, it, it just like from that very surface level, it seems very like black and white. What a lot of people don't understand, though, is that like if you want to become a teacher and you want to become a quote unquote licensed teacher, it's very difficult to do so unless you go through certain channels that oftentimes cost a lot of money and there are a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, now, this is not me being like an anti-establishment person who's being like, ah, all these like, you know, I'm just as like hippie, whatever. That's like, I just want to teach and I should be able to do so however I want with no rules, regulations as to how I do it. Obviously, there has to be some standardization. Education is way too important to just have anyone who thinks that they can teach to teach children. Um, but at the same time, a lot of folks don't understand that, like, okay, if you understand that, like, getting to the step where you have that license in hand is actually, it's not as easy as just being like, okay, I'll just take a couple of classes and boom, like, license, right? I'll just take a test, boom, license. Um, put, frankly, either you get your license if you go through a teacher preparation program as an undergraduate student, like, usually this is, this comes in the form of, it, uh, it comes in the form of a major or a minor in education. Uh, almost all states require some sort of like uh, teacher preparatory program that includes student teaching. And student teaching isn't just kind of like, oh, so you've taught you know, whatever, right? It's kind of like it's a very specific program where you have a mentor teacher. There's like, you know, certain like, uh, you know, structures in place that you have to follow that constant that make it count as student teaching. And so you can't really do that unless you are enrolled in a teacher preparation program. There are in many states, um, paths to alternative certification uh, that can also get you a license without having to have done that in undergrad. But those tend to be very limited in terms of what subject areas you can get licensed in. So for instance, if you want to be a social studies teacher and you want to get alternatively certified in social studies, good luck, because there's a lot of like oversight. The, the social studies teacher market is very oversaturated. And so unless there's a need for a certain, uh, certain teacher in a certain field uh, subject area, they oftentimes won't provide alternative certification because they, you know like there's just too many too many already certified teachers in the subject area um, and then those those programs tend to be quite expensive right um, for a just a certification and not really any sort of degree you can hold in your hands um, 
And even then, once you get certified, you will probably have to, depending on the state, have to get a master's degree eventually in order to like level up to the next level of certification or to maintain your license or something like that. The laws tend to vary state by state, and they also tend to change over time. Um, And so there's just a lot to keep up with. And so uh, there's that. And then if you if neither of those options are available to you, then you get a master's degree. Um, and there are a good chunk of master's degrees that do end in certification. However, if you want to get certified in a certain subject area, say Chinese, you need to be in a program that offers certification in that area. And so as I was thinking through this entire process, right, you know, number one, you don't like the, the choice to go to graduate school is not one that you can really make you can't really afford to make it hastily. Uh, number one, because graduate school costs a ton of money. Um, you know, like higher education as a whole is like such a money suck in general. Um, and so the going to graduate school, number one, has to be conscientious choice because it's a lot of money. And number two, when you're applying, um, you have to make it super clear um, and give a really, really good reason as to why you're pursuing graduate education at that time. And so... I don't know. For me, in my head, it was pretty simple. It was kind of like, you know, if I if I could like kind of, I don't know, summarize my entire or or give my statement of purpose in like a tweet, it would be like, hey, I've been teaching Chinese for six years with no formal background in education. Do you seriously want me to keep doing this like this? You know, like that would have been like my pitch. Now, obviously, that doesn't work. Um, but that was what was going through my head. It was kind of like, you know, on my own sort of like in, in for my own personal integrity, it was kind of like. I am a teacher and I've and it seems like even without any formal like education training, um, people are still eager to kind of hire me to teach at their schools. And I'm just like, I'll take the offers because I'm not, you know, beggars can't be choosers, but I don't feel right having no formal education in education and continuing to be an educator. Right. So and, and you know, obviously, even even without those reasons, I was just kind of like, I want to be a better teacher. Right. And, and a lot of that will come a lot of that I'm learning on the fly and like, you know, just doing a lot of reading and listening to a lot of experts and stuff like that. But, you know, there is something to be said about being in a cohort of people who have a similar goal as you um, and learning from it within an environment that is specifically tailored to that purpose. And so, you know, a combination of all those factors made me realize that, like, I got to do this, like, you know, eventually. Um and 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 being a teacher requires, you know, being plugged into a larger kind of education world, knowing what normal is, because I feel like that was one big gaping hole in my kind of understanding as a teacher of like not really knowing what normal was. Um, not to say that my school is like abnormal, but it is small. And I was in a program. I'm in a department, a sub department of like just me. And so I feel like a lot of my work has been me kind of figure out what works in my own particular context. Right. Because how, how else would you function? Why would you why would you go out of your way to like, you know, say, OK, this is normal everywhere else and try to apply it to a place where it might not work? No, the solution is to like figure out what works in your particular context in that in that particular time, which is great to an extent. But, you know, it doesn't give you a full picture as to what your you like you know, field, your your like vocational field actually looks like. Um, and so that was really important to me and that I felt was the main reason why doing graduate studies now made the most sense just because it felt very, very necessary at this time. Like I just re- have reached a junction where like it's just like it doesn't make sense for me to go on without this. Feel- this feels like the, the, the correct next step. So 
Um, that was kind of why I decided to bite the bullet. I knew it was happening eventually. It had to happen eventually. My GRE scores were going to expire, and so no better time than the present, right? Um, so I made this decision to start uh, compiling to start like formally applying to grad school summer of 2019. Um, started putting together materials. Started doing research. Actually, pretty late. I think it was well after the school year had actually started that I started researching programs. Um, and as I was researching programs, I like knew that from the from the outset, I was like, okay, I I want to get certified and I want to teach Chinese. So my list narrowed down very very quickly to graduate schools that offer Chinese certification. Now, luckily, there was some Chinese teacher out there who put together a list of like basically every university, not just in the U.S. but like in the world, that had like a Chinese teacher training sort of degree program. Um, the list is actually pretty extensive. Uh, you know, like like a lot of schools, you you'd be surprised at some of the schools on the list. Like Arizona State has like a uh, a certification program for Chinese teachers. You didn't think that Arizona had a market for that, but I guess they do. Um, the list is actually quite extensive, but it still narrows down the pool quite a bit, right? Um, and so as I was looking through the list, and I was realizing that like you know the investment for grad school at my current financial state, at my current age, um, the kind of program I was looking for was something that could really You know, I'm early career teacher, right? And so, you know, my whatever program I enter into, you know, despite serving a pragmatic purpose of like, you know, getting me a license or whatever, uh, this was gonna whatever program I enrolled in was gonna be the base for how I identify as an educator and how I form my philosophy as an educator. And so, like, being in a good program mattered a lot to me um, because, again, of that, like, kind of, you know, I'm not. I think a lot of teachers who are doing, you know, and the thing is, like. Because having a master's degree is like basically a career requirement for teachers, and a lot of teachers know that, and a lot of teachers know that like it's a financial investment that many can't necessarily afford to shell out lots of money on.、Um, it's actually kind of true that a lot of like teachers, like a lot of schools, when they look at a teacher's master's degree, they're not really looking for prestige. They're just they just know that, that master's degree is on there because of necessity.、Um, and so when I was looking at programs, I wasn't necessarily looking for prestige, knowing that like you know prestige oftentimes costs money and. In the Field of education,、uh, the, that prestige itself probably does not count for a whole ton.、Um, but I was still at the same time looking for the quality of the program again because the the idea of building that base was so fundamental to me, and also recognizing that like. Um, the six years that I've had as a teacher has just been 100% pragmatism,、um, it, or, or in, in like less nice sounding terms, like 100% survival. Right, kind of like here's a problem, okay. Fix it, you know, like like that's kind of how a lot of my how I've learned a lot of like my pedagogy has just been kind of like here's an obstacle,、um, fix it. And so like how I've been forming my identity as a teacher has I haven't had a lot of time to think about like the fifty thousand foot questions,、um, you know, how, how think about education on a higher level. It's really been kind of like here are your students, here are the issues they all face. Like how are you going to still deliver material, right?、Um, and I realize that I've made a lot of missteps as a, as an educator. Uh, because of that kind of survivalist mentality, and so,、um, be, you know, given that like this this year of master's study is kind of like probably one of the only points in my career where I won't have to be like you know classroom facing the entire time and like basically doing. Uh, you know, educational triage、uh, for a lot of time. I wanted to pick a really robust program, and so that narrowed down the list even more.、Um, and, and it made the narrowing down process a lot easier than I thought because you actually, as you look through the list,、um, particularly for Chinese, 
you realize that a lot of like the uh, the Chinese certification programs exist at certain universities only because like uh, the state probably realized that they needed like like Chinese is this very hot and happened in sort of field and they needed to get uh, and they needed to get in get it in schools really quickly and they needed teachers to teach it. So like, OK, here's a certification program. All right. You know, exist. There's a pathway. We've made it. It kind of sucks. But like here it is. Right. So that we can get teachers into the pipeline, which really says something about like the quality of like the whole certification process. But I won't comment on that because I don't know enough about it. But anyway. Right. There's a lot of like filtering that I had to do in terms of like recognizing what my goals were um, and then also being able to suss out which programs really align with those goals and which were just there to just be there. Right. Which ended in some very interesting sort of decisions as I was going. So one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that like when you apply to grad school and this is applicable to like all fields, not just education. But when you apply to grad schools, uh, there really is no such thing as a safety school. Now, this is applicable whether you're applying to, you know, education obviously but also for other fields right because number one the competition pool is a lot smaller you're really only competing against people who like if you want to really think about it it's like people who were able to do okay on the gre the gre is a very difficult test right and so you're like already competing with like a very very small percentage of the population um and so you know because of that stiff competition like there really is no such thing as a safety school um, and so thinking about it on those terms, right, like it becomes it makes the uh, the the way in which you view your choices, your your kind of list of schools very differently. Um, and so as I was choosing my schools and compiling my materials, it was just kind of like, you know, let's look for schools that have Chinese certification programs, of which I found like three, I think. Yeah, three schools that offered a Chinese program that was within a, a, a an educational context that was robust and cared a lot about, like, not just churning out sort of, like, you know, people with certifications, but the actual educators, right? Um, it was really funny because, like, as I was looking at certain programs, there were certain schools that you'd be like, oh, you know, the name of the school is not fancy. It's, like, a relatively inexpensive program. Then you, But then you look at, like, the admission standards, and they're, like, crazy, Um there was one school in New York, a public school in New York that I thought was like firmly safety school territory, um, just given the name and as well as the robustness of the program. And then you look at like the application requirements of it and like they had required applicants to go onto the school's campus and take a written Chinese test, handwritten Chinese test in front of a proctor on campus. Um, and as I was looking at this, I was just like, on the one hand, I'm like, this is supposed to be a safety school, right? So who am I to kind of judge? Second of all, I was like, this is supposed to be a safety school? And so there are like funny things like that that happen that make it really hard to kind of like say, okay, this is like a, you know, a definite safety school. And so um, you can't really think of your programs in that way. You can't really think of like, oh, I'm guaranteed admission to this school because of like, it's not a fan, it's not a school with a fancy name or whatever. There aren't even like that many statistics on admissions rates for a lot, acceptance rates for a lot of these programs anyway, because they do tend to fluctuate. And also like the programs themselves, the, the cohorts tend to be quite small regardless. And so a lot of these like things that you would think are kind of like good predictors, um, good safety nets in terms of like where you're throwing your money in terms of application fees, not applicable for a lot of what you're doing here. And so 
it just comes down to like, you know, I realized early on that like when I was picking rare programs, it was just kind of like, okay, which programs, just looking at it holistically, which programs would I not be mad about going to and then throwing money at, you know, um, let's, let's focus our energy on those. And so it was really, it felt like a gamble, really, because, you know, um, my undergraduate profile was not impressive at all. Um, I've said oftentimes before that my GPA from Wellesley was a 3.13, which I think depending on which kind of like how you're looking at it is a pretty horrifying number. It's a solid like B, but like, you know, again, like depending on how you look at grades, it's a, if you look at it from like a teacher certification standpoint, uh, the cutoff for a lot of, for even being allowed to be certified as a teacher, your undergrad GPA had to have been like at least a 3.0. Um, and so they won't even consider you if your if your GPA is lower than that. I don't think that's limited to like teacher certification. I think that's like a general understood standard for graduate study. If your GPA is like below 3.0, you're applying to grad, grad programs, you're kind of in a bit of trouble. And so my GPA was so low that like, I was like, oh man, if any school takes a second look at my application, I'd be, I'd be lucky, right? So my GPA was 3.13. Um, with like, you know, grades on my transcript that were below, well below 3.13, right? It wasn't that like I was a solid B student. It was like I got lucky with a couple of A's here and there. And then I had like a couple of, you know, very sub 3.0 grades. So my transcript was all over the place. Um... My GRE scores were, like, okay. Uh, you know, my verbal and writing were, like, pretty good. And then my 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 quant, my quantitative reasoning score was, like, very, very average. Um, stuff like that, right? That made that when I was looking at my materials, I just looked, like, very much like a rogue candidate. And so when you're applying to, like, really anything, I think this is applicable for, like, you know, I see a lot of, like, high school seniors try to, like, chance themselves as much as possible, like, kind of predict the future as much as they can, which, like, how you, you can't help but do that, Um but for me, when I was looking at my my application process, it was kind of like I literally cannot predict the future, right? Like I'm looking, I've I've already understood that there is no such thing as a safety school, and yet like my stats are all over the place, and so like, what am I supposed to think, right? Like I'm also not in a place where I can kind of throw fifty thousand dollars to like a degree that is just kind of very performative and low quality, and being kind of like, well, I match was like ma- I've emerged with like a master's of something, uh, having learned and absorbed very little from my master's program and that's like another thing too with like you'll hear a lot of teachers say that like um for better or for worse a lot of like the master's programs for education just feel very kind of like performative and being and you don't actually learn a whole ton which is a real shame considering that like that's a lot of money to be spending to not learn a whole bunch a lot um and so I was very cognizant of that as well so there's just a lot of things to kind of weigh a lot of things that are not guaranteed and so um you can understand why a lot of folks would be hesitant to be entering I don't know maybe education as a field altogether when there's a lot of like high stakes um and possible low return uh, factors in place. So um, as I was looking through programs, I was looking for, you know, if they were not Chinese certification programs, because uh, the quality of those programs were kind of like, you know, well, really, it was kind of like there were only three schools that had Chinese certification programs that I felt good about really spending money on. And then so 
the step after that was looking at programs that were not necessarily Chinese certification, but uh, teaching English as a second or other language, TESOL.、Um, and my my thought process with that was like, okay, well, if I see a school that doesn't necessarily have a Chinese certification program, but it has a good TESOL program,、um, maybe it's worth my while to get certified in TESOL and then get like a you know a second licensure for Chinese and pass the test because oftentimes you can do that. Like if you get like a general license for one subject area and you want to get certified in another. Subject area. A lot of the times, all it takes is to take a, the certification certification test for that subject, and then boom, you're like dual certified in like multiple subjects or whatever, right?、Um, so it made sense to me that even though like TESOL is not like my ultimate passion in life,、uh, that I could be like, there's a lot of overlap in terms of like linguistics and language learning that happens in TESOL land that I could apply.、Um, To becoming a Chinese teacher, and so that kind of roadmap made sense to me, and so so that kind of broadened my my pool a little more. And then beyond that, there were a couple of programs that I thought were housed in uh in in schools of education that I thought were just really really neat. And I just because was was kind of like let's you know this doesn't this program in particular doesn't end in certification of any sort right but again if my ultimate goal is to be like I want a good base in terms of becoming an educator then this seems like a logical step to take and so there were a couple schools like that so so basically the schools I applied to、uh, you know, fell into one of three camps it was either Chinese certification TESOL certification or random fancy school that. Had no certification, but seemed like it would fulfill my goals in becoming like a better educator all around. And and those like fancy schools were kind of like if I get into this program, which you know likelihood very low, then I would have to do some serious rethinking as to like what my goals were for you know. Having a master's program, having a master's degree, right? Am I willing to spend this much money to be in a master's program that is a lot more generalized, but yet feels a lot more high quality and does not end at a public school certification? And if so, is the value of that master's degree enough to kind of usurp or override the lack of certification? Which, again, in my mind at that point, was kind of like the end all be all in terms of being a quote unquote real teacher, right? Is having a public school licensure is that the end all be all? Is that what all schools that I'd be potentially working on in the future? Going to be looking at and counting, right? And so, that was kind of my thought process.、Um, so after I had kind of like narrowed down my list, it was then time to kind of、uh, figure out how I was going to apply, figure out my timeline for doing all of this work, which was challenging, man. Um, I'll be the first to say that my work ethic and organizational skills are kind of terrible.、Um, I've just never been a very well organized person, like ever, and procrastination has kind of been my mo. So if you're like wondering how in the world I had a three point one three GPA in undergrad, that's how.、Um, not really great with like multitasking at all. I cannot multitask,、um, which is why again, like this, this podcast episode probably sounds really scatterbrained right now because like you know I've thought about a lot of the content for weeks on end, really.、Um, Um, and then sitting down to kind of like record all of it, I have like I'm basically on information overload. I have so many thoughts on this that I'm trying to condense into like some sort of like stream of consciousness that makes sense. And at the same time, what is also my brain right now is like classes for the next week. So I'm like very distracted. Which you know, again, maybe this is like endemic to like literally every podcast episode. So honestly, if you've like stuck by this and you've tolerated a lot of my like nonsensical, disorganized rambling, kudos.、Um, this is generally. Reflective of how I do a lot of things, and it's not great.、Um, but hopefully, some of you can, you know, I don't know, appreciate it more than I do. <laughs> anyway, I'm just a disorganized person, and 
being able to multitask on that level to like maintain the usual stress of having to be a teacher um, and and de- feel dealing with the organizational challenges of that alone and then having to switch gears every night to work on grad school applications, which puts me, which is a totally different mindset to be in, right? Um, like I said before, a lot of my teaching just feels like, you know, triage and then so doing that every day and then going to grad school application land, which feels very here's the big picture of everything. Here's why education matters. Here is like why equity and all these things, justice um, matters when a lot of the times in my day to day, I don't, I literally don't have time to think on that level. It was just a very big switch back and forth. And I don't think this is limited to uh, applying for education programs at all. I think there's definitely like a lot of like when you're trying to put together a good application package there is a lot of pressure to make yourself sound like an interesting person that is very thoughtful and very kind of like, you know, philosophical with how you are thinking about it. Because that's kind of like academia as a whole is like, you know, thinking on a philosophical level on everything. Um, and then you're working in a field that does not allow you to be, that is supposed to be very philosophical. And then the real life practicality of things does not allow you the time or the energy to be philosophical. Um that kind of duality in thinking was very challenging to balance uh, from the get-go. So to be in two different mind, uh, mind spaces at once for about, I'd say a good like three to four months was challenging. Um, so there was that. And then there was also the challenge of like, I don't know, adhering to deadlines and like having to like compile, you know, a lot of, and just a lot of like, pr- like pragmatic follow-up email sending um stuff that that again required a level of organizational you know tact that I did not I don't possess um I put together a spreadsheet for myself that kind of allowed me to kind of view my deadlines and the application materials that were necessary so like there is no common app for grad school applications by the way um and so every single every single program requires that you that you compile and submit materials uh individually to each school so every school's requirement is requirements are slightly different they all ask for different things and so you have to keep that organized and you know and keep things keep that information straight for the most part and so uh it's kind of like you know each one of the biggest challenges that i ran into was like each school obviously required a statement of purpose but the length requirement or restriction was different for each one so like one school asked for two to three to five pages another school asked for 500 words and so me and my like you know unrealistic ambitiousness was like well obviously that means i'm going to write a different statement of purpose for every school because obviously every school is uniquely compelled and so why wouldn't I yeah that 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 ended pretty quickly um so what I ended up doing was like writing like a long like my three to five page version of my statement of purpose and then just cutting stuff and like you know having like a 500 word version of that and then like a 1000 word version of that and then like a 2000 word version of that and I just send that off to different schools with different length requirements and so um there was that component of the application uh there was the component of like every application asked for like do you believe that your grades are a true reflection of your abilities and again my gpa was a 3.13 which is not like ideal for like any graduate program so i had to like prepare an old uh, like a, an additional statement for that but not every school asked for that additional statement or they asked for that in different formats so there was that part of the equation that hopefully none of you will ever have to worry about unless you sucked at school like i did um you know but but i felt compelled to kind of include that because i would otherwise be kind of like screwing myself over if i did um you know requesting 
like every school requested for your undergraduate record in different ways. Some schools require you to like type in your grades. Oh man, what a soul sucking process that was, right? Like um, to be forced to kind of like, I, I have like actively avoided looking at my transcript at all for years because it was, it's literally like a, a physical manifestation of my failure as a human for four years. So like part of me for the past six years, like one, like, pretended that that period of my life didn't exist basically because I was just so ashamed of it and so wanting to believe that that was not a part of who I was and so um as I was applying for these schools like just the act of filling out the initial form like not even like the statement of purpose requiring me to open up my transcript and look at every single course I took and look at every single grade I received and type that in right um, and I remember, like, this was literally the first day of me meaningfully, like, you know, preparing my applications. And I remember walking out of that day being just like, man, I don't want to do this anymore, <laughs> right? Um, being just so confronted with all of my failure over and over again and having this very tangible reminder as to how I'm not enough, right? How how much of this felt like a fool's errand? Like, just constantly thinking to myself, I am literally spending well over $1,000, not including testing fees, Um to, to apply to programs that I might not even get into because of what I did in my undergrad six years ago. Um, and if you were to ask me, like, again, you know, again, spoiler alert, like I got into all of the programs that I applied to by some miracle. Uh, if you want to ask me, like, why that's so important to me, what I would want to point you to is like how I felt in mid-October 2019 as I was applying you know for the, all these programs for the first time and looking at my undergraduate record and being like this is such a waste of time because it's not even just like um it's not even just like oh man my grades sucked it's like I literally don't think I have a future ahead of me because you know this the the six years in which I have actively spent kind of avoiding this reality it is now coming back full circle to me and I cannot avoid it right like even if I were to like like if you were to say that graduate study in education is like the one thing that will kind of like legitimize my career and yet my grades are the one thing that are kind of going to back are going to be the arbiter as to whether or not I get into the next step to my career well guess is this is where the buck stops right like this is where the imposter syndrome the imposter um you know is is revealed to be who she really is and you know this is i have i have the extent of my faking has run its course so to speak right like i have kind of existed in the fantasy land of my little k through 12 christian school where everyone has i have somehow fooled everyone into believing that i'm i'm actually a good teacher and then like now when I actually need to legitimize it by getting into grad program, I look at my undergraduate record and be like, nope, this is actually who I am. And my I am the sum of these failures. And I've just gotten lucky over the past six years in convincing this entire community of people that I'm actually good enough to teach when in fact I really am not. Like it's like the psychological burden of the application process for me really is something that like felt like opening up old wounds again. And made the process very, very difficult. Um, and so, like, having to do that and still 
like have every reason to kind of like give up on this and be like, this is just again, I'm I'm throwing money down a hole by doing this. Who would look at my application when they look at, you know, my undergraduate record? Um, who would admit me? Right. And so you look at that and you're just kind of like that was that was the context under which I was applying to grad school, like putting in all this work and then having this cloud hangover being like, this is all pointless because there is nothing about what you have done as a as a teacher and as a student that really puts you in a position where you should be asking this much of anyone to to allow you to come into their program. Like that was literally where I was at. Um, and the thing is, like when you're in that kind of mind space, when you have those numbers and th- these like kind of like empirical facts of your undergraduate record right in front of you, there's very little that anyone can really tell you to kind of convince you otherwise, right? I think any like. Uh, any counselor would look at a 3.13 GPA and be like, yeah, this is going to limit you, right? Um, and so that was kind of the pretext. And and the thing is, like, what legitimized my belief in this was that I all I could think about was when I had just graduated from Wellesley and I was looking at, like, um, you know, employment opportunities, and I had applied to Fulbright as well that year. And my senior year at Wellesley was basically defined by my like systematic rejection of every single program, every single sort of like thing that I had applied to. And that kind of like sealed it for me that like my future was basically doomed because like every single thing that I thought was I was a shoe in for, um, you know, all the things I was just like, despite my undergraduate record, despite my grades, my gumption and passion for the subject alone and my ability to write about it should be enough to get me in totally shut down from every single one. And so I I was like already carrying that 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 history of failure right um as I was applying for grad school which felt like an even higher bar than a lot of like the fellowships and programs that I had applied to as an undergrad right um it just felt like a very Sisyphean effort um this kind of like application process but like at the same time I knew that like I had to do it right like that that like teaching for me just felt like such a like, I, I knew that that was what I was supposed to do. But the thing is, I couldn't continue doing it in good conscience without having a master's degree, right? Having some sort of, like, formal education on it. And so it just felt kind of like, I know this is set for failure, and yet I must complete it. And so that was kind of what pushed me through to the end, was being like, um, you know, I know that, like, the possibility of me getting into zero programs is very, very real. And yet I can't, I have to say that I at least tried, because I can't in good conscience be like, yeah, I want to be an educator educator but I didn't even try to kind of like fulfill the basic tenets of being a legitimate educator because I was scared um and so you know that's kind of where I set myself up to be and so did the uh you know wrote my statement of purpose and submitted my transcripts and filled out all the forms and you know wrote a big long explanation as to why my grades were terrible and threw it into like the grad school application hole with you know a bunch of cash and then hope for the best um and and it was hard and it was just kind of like I didn't want to tell a lot of people that I was even applying because who wants to be that person where you're like 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 just think about the scenario right who wants to be that person where like someone's asking when you tell someone oh I'm applying to grad school their next question is oh where are you applying to you tell them the list and then they think that like oh you must be super confident and you're like actually no there's actually every single evidence in the world that I will get into zero of these programs and then they'd be like so then why did you apply to such ambitious programs and you're like well here's the reason why and it's just like there's no good explanation right which is again why I'm like devoting literally an hour of podcast time to talk about this um, because there's just a lot about 
a lot about the process that just rested on this this hope that like there is legitimately no reason why I should believe that I should get into any of these programs because you know on the surface you'd be like your grades suck so why don't you make some wise decisions as to which like apply to some programs that are within your reach and then you're like yeah but those programs aren't actually worth the investment and you're like wow that takes a lot of you know you must think pretty highly of yourself to have those kind of stats and to say eh like you know beggars classic beggars can't be choosers kind of situation right and so like there's a lot about a lot of lot about my situation that just reasonably led to a lot of doubt um and 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 was just kind of like there's i have every right to like every all these programs have every right to say no to me because it feels very foolish um the way that i applied and yet you know i was conscientiously going into this process knowing that i was being very foolish about it not necessarily out of any sort of ambition but being kind of like I don't really have much of a choice but to be foolish about this, um, you know. And so, so anyway, uh, so I was I was spending. I I had applied to. I was planning on like. So I went to Japan on kind of as a solo trip at the end of December. That trip was kind of supposed to be like my. I'm done with graduate applications and I'm celebrating. And my this is how disorganized and procrastination uh procrastination prone I am um I was literally writing my statement of purpose while in Tokyo in my hostel hostel and so like all of my applications were submitted almost very last minute if the if the deadline was January 15th I submitted it January 14th right like stuff like that um again playing into the whole narrative of being like I am not suited for any of these programs whatsoever none of this is a shoe in for me um and so all the applications went out January at the latest January 15th. Um, And then by January 20th, I started getting calls from schools being like, can we interview you? And I'm just like, oh, that sounds pretty standard. And a lot of the interviews that I got uh, at that point were kind of like, I don't know. Um, First, the first call back I got was from UConn, um, which is like kind of like if there was a safety, that would have been the safety, not necessarily because UConn's UConn's education school was like anything uh, not rigorous because NEAG is a great, great education school. Um, But it was because the reason why I thought of it as kind of like if there was a safety, that's a safety is because their Chinese certification program had just started a couple of years ago. And I know for a fact that there are not a ton of people out there who are like, hey, I want to get a master's degree to teach Chinese and I live in Connecticut. Like there's just not a huge market for that. So in my mind was kind of like just from sheer numbers alone, this will be my safety. And so I remember I submitted that application like early January, got a call January 20th. Um, from the director of the program who basically along the course of that interview was basically like, you are the most ideal candidate we've ever gotten for this program. And I'm like, well, that's nice. Uh, I mean, I know that I didn't say this to him, obviously, but I was just like, yeah, that's nice. Also, I know your program's been around only for a handful of years, so it doesn't say a ton to me. But from that moment on, I was like, maybe... Maybe there's something more to this process that I hadn't been seeing all the way through. Um for for some other person outside of my school, outside of my friend group to look at my application from an objective point of view, for someone with an education background to look at my ad- application and not laugh at it and throw it out, right? At least I could like, you know, I knew that I had like passed that threshold, you know? Um, 
to to have that kind of like verification from an outside party, I think that actually getting getting the acceptance letter from Yukon, um, January like last week of January, first letter to come in, I think that was actually the most momentous, most like that was like the the biggest point of celebration for me was getting into that first school because that um, told me that number one, I would had gotten into a school i would not be joining the uh the the many the group of the 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 group of people who had applied to schools um and not get gotten into single because i really thought that that would be me um but then to also have had someone on the outside look at my application look at my story look at my purpose um why i wanted to be an educator and not see that as a total joke you know, like I had, to be honest, when I was looking at my application. Um, because the thing is, when I was applying, as I was writing my statement of purpose, um, I committed myself to be 100% honest about uh, how I was going to present myself. Because I think, again, like, given how unpredictable and how, like, again, like the whole nature of there not being a safety school in the graduate admissions process, you can't try to game the system. I mean, this is something that I told my seniors all the time is that like, you can't try to game the system in terms, like there are no guarantees with undergraduate admissions. There are even less guarantees with graduate admissions. And so for me, it was realizing that like, given that circumstance, there was no way for me to kind of kind of up my chances by framing my application in a certain way to make myself look like a more ideal candidate so in the absence of that reassurance what could I, what else could I do um I could be totally honest and so that's how I wrote my um my statement of purpose uh that's how I wrote the little like additional statement on like why my grades were so bad things of that nature and so to be able to like have put together an application that was 100% honest um and to have you know, one school, right, at least one person in the education field, one admissions board look at that and be like, this is the kind of person we want. That moment to me was one of the most important in uh, validating that the work that I'm doing, the person that I am, um, the the things that I have to bring to the table were, are worth something. Because I think I really needed that sort of validation to to know that like, what I have to offer is incomplete as of right now, which is why I'm going to graduate school, but it is worth something to someone. And it could be worth something to more people um, once I complete uh, the degree. And so that was the first. UConn was the first. Um, Brandeis was the second. Brandeis was the first program that I applied to that I had interviewed with and was legitimately very, very excited about that program. And I would have been so stoked to just have gone to UConn and Brandeis and that was it. Um, so Brandeis was second, Georgetown was third. Um, and then after that, it just like got to be like, you know, things that should not have happened just started happening. Right. So it was UConn, Brandeis, Georgetown, Stanford. And I think that was the big, the big one, because I think of all the schools after like Georgetown had come in, I was, I was starting to get a little confident and being like, okay, I have a chance. And that chance excluded Stanford you know, almost like by name because Stanford's program was so, this was, this is the Stanford STEP program, um, Stanford Teacher Education Program, um, which is very competitive. And Stanford in itself exists in a, like a place, I mean, this is very virtue of the fact that I, I grew up on the East Coast. And so everything that exists in California just kind of like is a different universe to me. And so I really, really, really felt that like I could have probably gotten into every school except for Stanford. And so for Stanford to 
to to say yes that was a huge huge moment that was not a moment that like when I got that acceptance letter I feel like I take a lot of things in my life for granted because I feel like a lot of those things like the more you make a big deal out of things the more entitled you seem um and so I I feel like a lot of my my reaction to good news tends to be very kind of like matter of fact and um and that was the one where I genuinely could not be matter of fact about it because it was just so unexpected and felt so, so undeserved. Um, and so, yeah, and so that happened. Um, and then after after Stanford was, I think, NYU. After NYU was Columbia. And I think after that was Harvard. And then after Harvard was Penn. And I think that brings us to eight. And so, like, as all of those rolled in, I think the significance of all of those, it, there wasn't after, after, after like a certain point, it was just kind of like, I don't even know which program is my top anymore. Because like, after every acceptance, I kept anticipating for the next one to be like a rejection. I was just like, you know, I'm going to jinx it for myself, you know, like this, a, a good thing, all good things must come to an end. Um, and all these, all these schools, I'm just literally, I just tricked them into letting me in. All this is just like happenstance. Even with Stanford, I had known that like the official like uh like the official letters were supposed to come out on like what february 21st on a friday and i had at that point had not gotten a letter from stanford and so i had a thought that like you know oh if i hadn't gotten a letter by by friday i was probably not on the list um and then i had gotten the letter monday night and so what that had told me was that like oh someone had gotten in on the first round of things and then had immediately rejected their acceptance because they had gotten in somewhere else and then I was on the wait list right and so even that like that Stanford acceptance felt very conditional and was not really indicative of anything um, because it felt I, I had kind of like put in my mind that I was a waitlist candidate anyway I wouldn't have there's no way I would have known any of this but this, these were the things I was using to justify you know the the total like you know nonsense that was my life at that point because literally. Um, Again, given the context under which I was not just applying, but the context in w- under which I had understood myself and my abilities, because I had realized through this process how much of my life over the past 10 years, basically, ever since I had entered undergrad, how much of my identity had turned from like a high school student who was very confident in my abilities and having that totally shattered by the time I was in college and then going from like, you know, I'm a competent person to I am the dumbest person I know. And how much of that ethos has defined my self-identity as being like my my understanding of myself as being fundamentally incompetent, fundamentally underachieving, fundamentally or things even just like I'm, you know, not hardworking, I'm lazy, I'm disorganized, all those things and realizing that over the past 10 years of my life, basically my 20s, um, so much of my understanding of myself has been, you know, under the guise of wanting to be realistic. Uh, so much of my how I how I understand myself has been colored by my perceived incompetency, right? Like like my my presupposition of myself, my my default position is that like I don't know how to do anything and I'm really dumb. And and everything that I've gotten able I've been able to do in the past couple of years, any successful thing, any good thing, has really just been a product of of chance. And I think a lot of like not to say again that like you know like I said like admissions to any school or even like a job right like you know so much of how we frame those things in our current society has been just kind of like this is a this is an indicator of how how your worth as a human being your intelligence stuff like that and when in fact like even even the acceptances I got I'm sure were just a product of circumstance right it just so happens that this certain at this certain juncture this certain school 
saw a need for a person like me, right? Or they just happen to have a spot that opened up where I fill that niche, right? This just seems very like circumstantial. And so it's important to like not frame any of these like so-called achievements as being just kind of like, you know, to have so much bearing as to like, oh, because I got into Stanford or Harvard, that therefore makes me a smart person. And this is proof, right? I think it's really tempting to do that. Um, when in fact, the reality of it is that this really doesn't prove really much of anything. Um, but at the same time, what this has helped me realize is that like, you know, if that is true, then my failures also don't prove much of anything either, right? Um, just because I got rejected from Fulbright as a senior at Wellesley does not mean that I'm a fundamentally worthless person, you know? It just so happens that Fulbright did not need a person like me at during that specific year, at that specific site, during that specific time. Um and realizing exactly how helpless I have been to like the things that happen around me and how many of the things that have happened to me in my life, whether good or bad, have just been a combination of like, I don't know, destiny, luck, God's will, however your worldview kind of frames this. Um, it really shows you that like, you know, the your life is really a combination of the things that you encounter and you are shaped by those encounters. Um, I never sought out to be a teacher in the first place, like ever. Um, but that is the reason why I got into these schools, right? Like if I decided to be a journalist, cause I was like, that's what I wanted in life. And that's why I was like, you know, from whatever sort of like logic, whatever. And I thought that that would be, you know, what was best for me. Obviously, um, I feel like I'd be in a very different place in life, right? It might not be even the best place in life. And so, you know, I, I've come to realize, you know, I like I turned 27 recently and so I'm like firmly late 20s now um, or inching ever closer to middle age, which is like terrifying to think about because I still feel like I'm, you know, I still feel like I'm a 12 year old most of the time, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I, I realize and this is something that I feel like I've been imparting to my students as well is that like there are a lot of things in life that are that we want to perceive as being good or bad um when in fact a lot of the things that happen to us are in in it of themselves morally neutral and it's our reaction um or what happens to us internally or or like our thoughts and um you know things like that 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 end up being not morally neutral right our reaction is good or evil the things that happen to us aren't necessarily good or evil they're just things that happen to us and so um looking back on uh, the way in which, you know, people, I remember like I posted something on Reddit because I was just so like out of my own brain at that point, like uh, about my Stanford acceptance. And then like, it was so strange. It was just like, it was just a throwaway post. And then like, I had a bunch of people like private message me about like, can I see your stats about how you got into Stanford? And I'm just like, I don't think these really count for anything. I don't know what this, what reassurances brings you, but if anything, it shows you kind of like, you know, People want to see like, oh, they see your success story and be like, if I follow what they do, then I will wind up in the same success story. And I think if anything, if you were to follow my success story, there's not a lot about it that really ought to have led to success. And that should really cause you to question whether or not, you know, the end goal of getting into Harvard or Stanford or Penn or whatever um, is really, you know, ought to be considered success more than it is just a thing that happens to you, right? Um, and so that's how I've been trying to like frame my experiences so far. I feel like part of the framing process is still happening now as I've like, you know, decided on a program, by the way. So I've decided to to go to Harvard, um, which is which was a big decision because that was the one program that did not offer teacher license license licensure. Um, 
And I had to think long and hard about like whether or not public school really was for me because I think over the past couple of weeks, I felt a specific calling to working in independent schools, which was a very challenging thing for me to reconcile because I think a lot of the times when you think about education and equity, you think about public school, right, as a you know public good, um, as something that is available to everyone. And independent schools, private schools are not available to everyone because like there's a huge economic barrier that even allows you into that space. And so that's something that I've really kind of had to reconcile with myself is like, you know, why do I feel this particular calling to working with rich kids, basically, if you want to put it very crudely, right? Um, you know, and so, but I feel like a lot of the the program that I'd be doing at uh, HGSC kind of speaks into that space, right? The program that I'd be going into is called uh, Learning and Teaching, which is really about how studying how learners learn and how teachers teach and and reconciling those two spaces. And so um, I realize that a lot of the work that I've, I I do both as a Chinese teacher as well as what I do with Model Congress really presses into that. And it was really coming off the tails of being at Harvard Model Congress. The fact that it was at Harvard, it was at Harvard, like Harvard Model Congress does not have much to do with the fact that um, the program I'm committing to is at Harvard, but it was really kind of um, coming out of like that Model Congress experience, realizing that um, over my six years of teaching, the best the best kind of moments, edu- like educational moments happened within the Model Congress context and realizing that like bar none, um, if I were to choose what kind of experiences I want to define my life as an educator, it would be what I see at Model Congress. Now, is there a way to replicate that in any context and how do we do it? And that was kind of the question that kind of uh, that was arching over my decision making. Um, and then realizing that a lot of those like big picture questions, um, they're really hard to kind of really you you don't really have a lot of space for that under the context of public education. I could be totally wrong about this, which is why I think it's important for me to go to grad school at this juncture. But um, but I think Harvard or not Harvard, right? Fancy brand name school or not, the decision making and all of that was really really came down to not as much like I got into a really great school and I have to do that, you know, do do that acceptance justice or whatever. It really came down to the program. Um and it also came down to money. Uh, uh, Harvard's graduate school, even for, for, for going into a field that is as unlucrative as education is, the, the cost for graduation grad, uh, grad school for education is like insane. Um, and Harvard's program, surprisingly, was actually one of the most reasonable. And so, you know, there's things like that to consider. I'll be paying for a lot of this stuff, um, you know, out of pocket. My, my, my school has fed me well and uh, living at home to while I was working is probably one of the best decisions I've ever made financially. And so um, I'm in a pretty good place. And so, yeah, I mean, as I'm looking towards, you know, what my life will look like, you know, 12 months from now, as you know, this time next year, I'll be completing my second and final semester at Harvard, hopefully it it'll, it, it feels I, I'm, I'm really excited as to how my views as an educator will change, because I think even without the benefit of being in graduate school, my views as an educator has changed every single year I've taught. And so to be finally in a place where I have the time and space to slow down and think about all these things that I've barely had time to think about over the past six years, I'm really looking forward to that. So on that note, uh, this brings us to the uh, the last episode of this season. Like I said, um, it feels kind of weird ending off uh, the first season and going on hiatus at this juncture in time, going back into reality now that, you know, I'm looking outside and it seems like the world is at a standstill. I was driving around, driving back home um, 
just this afternoon from from work and like expecting there to be no cars on the street and yet there were tons of cars on the street but if you look closely all the license plates were from out of state and you realize these are people who are like driving back home from school or whatever from college uh, after being asked to like leave residence halls and so on and so forth and so the world definitely looks different now the world definitely for education for school already looks really different um and it's a scary kind of different it's an uncertain kind of different and so um am i a little emotional at the fact that like you know that the last semester that i have with my current school after this like really illustrious informative six years is going to take place over like basically zoom meetings and google classroom yeah it's a little depressing but i think at the same time what what better note to end off end off like you know this this chapter this sort of like you know you've had five years to kind of like get your get your sea legs in terms of a real classroom and then here's where you know your 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 final exam is this sort of like total paradigm shift as to everything you've learned but why is this you know why is this why is this intimidating to you when your entire career as an educator has felt like you know playing it by ear every day anyway you know and so um i'm excited i'm excited for the next few weeks i'm excited for um you know what next year will look like and i'm also excited for what this podcast will look like especially since as i'm looking at this harvard program that it's not a chinese language centered program at all um although i do feel that like chinese teaching as like a like a field will fold into it very closely um I'm I I'm excited as to what this podcast will look like. Uh, my mom made like a comment a couple of weeks back saying like she was like because she's a religious listener to this podcast like all moms are, um, bless her. But like she was like saying like you know as as the uh, as as the series goes on it seems like your podcast has less and less to do with Chinese and I'm like yeah yeah it does um and so kudos to all of you who like started this podcast thinking that i would be giving you tips on how to learn language which is what most language podcasts are all about and now you're just hearing me talk about my life all the time so thank you for staying on board thank you for living life with me um and sharing in um in these in these moments but um i'm i'm realizing you know more and more that you know i think that the fact that my career started as a Chinese teacher and the fact that I find so much depth in in analyzing Chinese teaching as a broader field um, and the fact that like my statement of purpose was about teaching Chinese in particular I think that will always be a part of who I am as an educator and how and I'll always use those experiences to frame um, you know the so-called 50,000 foot level things that I'll be studying in the next year I don't think any of that will go away but I think as far as this podcast is concerned hey who knows right I think I think the break will be good for us all um, as I do kind of a hard reset as to what um what this podcast will look like in the future it'll still definitely exist i think it's been really good for me to kind of have a place to i don't know talk about talking to a mic and hear how i like you know sound to uh, other people or whatever um but in any case thanks for sticking along for the ride and thanks for sticking along on this very very long-winded episode that um if anything has been a really good procrastination tactic for uh, before i start thinking about lesson plans for the next week. Um, so anyway, uh, that being said, it is the end of the season. Um, in light of the things that have been happening, I don't think I, I'm like, I'm having some like thoughts. I have some feelings about like what the media space will, what the internet will look like over the next couple of weeks as all of us are, you know, sitting at home and like, you know, having spending more time in screen in front of screens more than ever. Um, and I'm sure that like content creators who have been like living at home and doing work from their homes, uh, you know, making content are like, this is business as always. If anything, it'll be like more business than always. And so, um, 
my goal is not in that space. Obviously, like my commitment is to, I don't know, surviving the year with my students and doing as good a job as that as anything. But I do want to find a way to kind of document this and to give you guys who are not necessarily in the education space, uh, kind of like a, a look into what are how teachers are doing things. So um, I'm not really sure the format of this yet. I think it won't be a, f- a formal, it's not going to be a formal season two, because that'd be silly to kind of end off season one the next week or like, you know, in three days launch into season two. That'd be silly. Um, so I'm still deciding kind of a format for this, but I do kind of want to do a, a running series on uh, sort of what things look like on the ground in terms of teaching in a time of coronavirus, which I think, you know, is is kind of an unprecedented sort of experience right now. And I think there's a lot of things and I and I need the space to kind of decompress and think through things, too. And so uh, just know that that something of that nature is coming um, and to keep keep yourself plugged into the uh, uh you know into the happenings of this podcast if you're interested in that sort of thing so anyway on that note if you haven't followed us on social media yet you should do so even though the season is over but there are definitely still things to come on instagram we are at bad chinese teacher on twitter we are at bad chinese pod and on facebook just search us up bad chinese teacher podcast if you're looking for me um i will be here forever and always uh you can find me on instagram at patricia lu on twitter at patricia sq lu and you can find my latest writing at my blog at blog.patricialu.net um and yeah this brings us to the end of season one but you'll be hearing from me very very soon um keep an eye out all right so take care stay healthy stay busy um and i look forward to talking to you all soon see ya